if you saw on the on the last lap, he, he took the white and he slowed and he, you know, he thought the race was over. Does that ever happen to you? You know, he dodged a bullet there because I said, you know, that's the dumbest thing. Can anybody be be that dumb? Walter Funfilter this week. I have a very special guest, uh, honored to have with me, Hall of Fame NASCAR racer and a buddy of mine, Mark Martin. Mark, thanks so much for joining me on my podcast, buddy. Good to be here with you, man. It's good to see your face. I hadn't seen you in a long time, buddy. Well, I only feel like I, I haven't missed a beat with you because I get to see you on Twitter and, and all the places uh, social media-wise and your travels around the country and um, where, where in the world are you? Well, I'm in Montana right now. Uh, Montana for the summers, uh, or out that way. We travel a lot too, but, uh, home base is Montana for the summer. Uh, you know, and talking about Twitter, you know, the story on that, and you probably haven't told that was when I was driving your, your car one day early on, you said, hand me your phone. And I handed it to you and you handed it back and, I was on Twitter and it was blowing up because you said something on yours about welcoming me on there. So there are days when I curse you for that. Yeah, <laughs> But I want to tell you, it's absolutely invaluable resource for the love and passion of racing and racing history. I found the, the greatest people to follow that just, it has really enriched my uh, knowledge of the history of the sport and uh, and that part of it is absolutely fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think people getting to know you better is, is a wonderful thing too because you have such a passion for not only racing but for life and uh, fitness, uh, traveling, and, and I, I really appreciate that. And I was going to tell you, you look great. You look the same as you did the day I think I met you at Kentucky Motor Speedway in 1981. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I assume you're still hitting the, the gym and working out? Yes, sir. Hitting it really hard five days a week. Um, you know, that's my passion. It, it's, uh, it's my addiction, um, you know, and, and I miss it. Sometimes when we travel, you know, uh, I'll miss a week or so. Um, last year when we traveled, uh, I typically was able to find a gym wherever we were at and go hit the gym in the mornings, but not so much this, this summer, uh, when we get out, I think I'm going to pass on the public gyms. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and I don't even know if they're open or not. We were in Oregon last week. It didn't even look like the gym that I went to the year before when I was there was even open. So yeah, I'm going to miss a, miss it from now and then, but uh, still eating really, really uh, healthy and uh, learned something new. Kind of got on this keto thing. Uh, yeah. Keto diet. Um, I'm not full keto because to be full keto, you've got to be under, you know, around or under 30 net carbs a day. And, dude, that is big time. You know, I can do – 50, 30, 30 to 60 pretty well. But I eat a lot of food. You know, at 2,500 calories a day, you got to know that almond butter has carbs in it. 
avocados, all the stuff that you go after to get the fat, healthy fat also has carbs in it. Yeah. So um, it adds up throughout the day. But anyway, I, I don't mean to elaborate on that, but it's freaky how lean I've gotten since I, since I, I you know, I still have as many calories. Actually, I've, I've had to up my calories in order to not lose weight. Um, so, so what's the what's a daily what's a daily diet for you? What what what's that look like? Twenty five hundred calories of um, with with hardly any carbs. Um, it's uh, um, you know I, I I use a protein powder. It's like a a plant plant based protein powder. So my my uh, post workout shake and it's it's not really post workout. It's a little later on. I'm trying to do a uh, 16 hour a day fast and then a, a eating window of eight hours. But that's pretty hard for me because I eat all the time. But anyway, protein shake uh, with protein and collagen and avocado and almond butter, that shakes about 800 calories coming right out of the gate. <laughs> um, I, and then just, you know, tuna, salmon, fish, uh, green vegetables, um, plenty of, uh, I've found some keto protein bars. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of food to hit 2,500 calories and especially with the, with the sugar cut out, but I've really, I've really enjoyed that. And, and it's a lot of food. I've enjoyed, uh, I've been intermittent fasting going 16 hours without eating anything. Um, I haven't quite figured out how not to have a, a glass of wine or two during that, that time frame, but, but certainly no food. And, and I've lost, uh, I got really, I got, I hit my record high weight and that was my motivation, but I've lost about 35 pounds, uh, over the last three months. And, and the, um, the, the COVID-19, uh, it, it assisted me in that because, you know, there wasn't any place to go or anything to do. And I found myself just, you know, going and, and eating and hanging out just to have something to do. And so I found other ways to, uh, to entertain myself here at the house and, and I have been really enjoying myself uh, losing weight, which has really always been a challenge for me, but I've enjoyed that and, and just trying to eat healthier when I, it's funny when you, when you fast for 16 hours, you damn sure aren't going to eat a big greasy cheeseburger as soon as you get going, you know, because you're thinking, I don't want to waste all this time that I just, that I just right. spent my eating by eating poorly. So I've really uh, worked on my diet as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that intermittent fasting is, uh, you know, they're really rave about that. And all the cell rejuvenation, you know, it's supposed to be good for your brain. Of course, you know, a lot of people do a lot longer fast than 16 hours. I can't handle it. I'm sorry. <laughs> 16 is a backbreaker for me. Uh, I just got to eat. I'm just a little guy in a hot furnace, man. I, I got to, I've got to eat. So uh, a lot of days I make 16 hours. Every once in a while, I just say, screw it and have my uh, shape. Right. I, I still uh, lift at, uh, at 7 a.m. So I usually have my shake about 9 or 10, sometimes 11. So, uh, but love my training, still hitting it hard, learning how to, you know, really do it with, you know, train hard without, inner, you know, without having injuries yes, and sir. injuring myself. So back's doing really good. And uh, that's good, strong as it's ever been. 
And uh, just uh, yesterday, I, I uh, deadlifted 245 for uh, two reps. So at, at 125, yeah, at 125 pounds, 245, and an old man, 61 years old, you know, 245 ain't bad. That's, a, that's, that's tremendous. Uh, you could pick me up and put me down. That'd be pretty cool to see. Uh, um, I talked about, you said you're in Montana. I went out to Montana probably six, eight years ago uh, and raced at Kalispell. And, oh. and then went whitewater rafting. I, I spent a week out there just, just taking it all in. I'm, I'm really jealous that, that you get to spend your, your summers out there and, and see all the beauty that, that um, it offers. You know what? Speaking of Kalispell, they closed the track permanently this summer. So it's gone, and what a beautiful little short track that oh, yeah. was. It's really uh, disappointing, disheartening to see that, but, uh, you know, that's uh, kind of the state we're in right now. We're, we really need to support our local short tracks if we can because they might not be here if we don't. I'll tell you a funny story. I went to Kalispell to run a K&N West race, and I drove for Bill McAnally, and I qualified fifth, and I started alongside Ben Kennedy, because he was racing back then. And Lisa Kennedy came up to me and said, don't touch my son. Don't, don't be running into my son. I said, yes, ma'am, no problem. <laughs> they threw the green flag. And I think on lap, uh, like lap 20 or something, I took the lead. And on about lap 30, I, I lost the lead. And on lap 50, I got lapped. Because Dang. I didn't, I didn't know, I wasn't all, I didn't, wasn't knowledgeable on the whole saving your tires thing. And I, I found me a line, you know, a short track, everything's around the bottom, but I found me a line right out next to the wall and I was hauling till, till I burned all my tires off and they won't let you have anymore. So I think I finished 11th a lap down, but that was kind of, kind of a crazy night for me to learn how those guys race those cars without getting new tires every time you want them. Yeah. You know, that tire saving is a big deal. Uh, talk, you know, talk, especially when you've got those long races on the short tracks. Yeah, you talk about short track racing and, and how exciting it is. What did you think about the announcement that the All-Star race is going to go to Bristol? Uh, it's going to be in July, and we're going to have the All-Star race on a short track. Yeah, wow. Well, everything about NASCAR racing right now is exciting to me. I am so proud of the sport uh, getting back on the racetrack before – anybody else and doing such a great job it was so good to have racing back on and I'm loving no practice loving it um boy that would have been up my wheel you know that been right in my wheelhouse back in the day uh, I, I would actually love having qualifying with no practice too like they did at Charlotte only you know they were restricted at Charlotte so they could run wide open so it wasn't a big deal but you know if if it was where you couldn't run wide open, there's nothing more exhilarating than trying to go out and bust a lap without ever being on the track for a year, you know? So that, that was pretty good uh, as well. But I just, I, I'm, I'm loving it. And going to Bristol for the all-star race, obviously is going to be new. And I can't imagine it will be anything but a blast. Well, that, that race we just had there was a blast. I mean, it was exciting. There's so much happening there late in the race, a lot of actions, a lot of, a lot of cautions, just, just good short track racing like we're, we're accustomed to seeing. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying all the racing, man. I'm, I'm glad they're back on the track. Love the Wednesday night racing or whatever. Um, looking forward to Talladega. That'll be, uh, that's going to be crazy. Um, you know, and then, you know, on to Pocono, double header. Gosh, that's going to be cool to see, too. So a lot of new and exciting stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of everyone. I knew it, it was a, a Herculean effort to get that, to get back on the racetrack for everyone yes. and the competitors and everything else. But it's been a really good formula. Uh, I think it's been fantastic. The one day shows with no, no practice, no qualifying. It's, it's, it's been cool. Been, been fun to watch. Yeah, we had, I had Steve Phelps on last week and we talked about everything that went into getting back to racing. And, you know, not only did NASCAR get a major sport back, back on the track and Fox covering the races on TV, um, before anyone else, they've done it in a very responsible, safe manner and a lot of, uh, obviously, precautions taken. Um, and now at, at, at Miami, we welcomed 500 guests and we're going to have a thousand at Talladega along with some campers. So it's cool. It's going to be cool to see fans up. I mean, ain't many of them, but it sure is better than seeing those big empty grandstands that we've been looking at. Yeah, it's the first step, you know, first step to getting back uh, where we want to be. So um, that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's been, been, uh, I can't imagine what it feels like to, to win the race and stop on the front straightaway and step out and not have anybody in them. That's the, the feeling that you get is just unbelievable. The, the, the vibe that you get from the, the crowd, uh, you know that. And, uh, you know, it's got to be a strange feeling for those guys to, to not have that. And I look forward to, to getting back there, you know, one day soon. Uh, me too. We, when we first started talking, I mentioned 1981 um, when, when I met you at, at Kentucky Motor Speedway. I think it was a, maybe the first time I'd ever met you. You brought your car there and raced the guys. And um, I want to go back to 1981 because that, that to me is still a pretty amazing story. You were an ASA racer. Uh, you came, came down south and, and, and started, ran five cup races in 85 and 81, excuse me. And you won the pole twice. I mean, you, you were incredible. Nobody had ever done that showed up like that and, and been as competitive as you were. Uh, what do you remember about those days and, and how, how you, how confident were you that when you, when you came South, you're going to be able to run like you did? Well, first of all, I remember everything that's important. <laughs> so the car was important. So my view of uh, cup cars was an evolution of a street passenger car. My ASA cars were a purpose-built ground-up race car, built from the ground-up race car. So that's how we built my first cup car. I wanted to build it as, as much like my ASA car as I could because I was familiar with it. And so it was ridiculously light. It had small, it didn't have, I, I had never been in the pit area, the garage area of a NASCAR race in my life. I'd only been in the grandstands a few times. And so I didn't know what they used. I wanted to use 
the brakes that I used in ASA. I wanted to use the brake pedals. I wanted to use the uh, radiator, uh, oil cooler, all these things, you know, from that, which were very small and much lighter than what NASCAR teams use. Um, and car was stupid light. Um, I didn't know how I would do, but I had never done anything. Everything I'd touched had been golden to that point. Um, you know, three ASA championships in a row, starting uh, the first one at 19 years old. At that time was a big deal about being that young uh -huh. and winning, you know, national championship like that. So we built the car and it took 600 pounds of lead. And the left rear tire went over, you know, grain scales would only uh, take a le uh, 10 P's, a thousand, you know, a P, we called them a P, it was a hundred, <laughs> would only hold 10. So the left rear went over a thousand, over 1100 pounds. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even measure it. It had 600 pounds of lead in it. We took it to North Wilkesboro, rolled off the truck on Friday, qualified fifth, wasn't no big thing. Well, the race started on Sunday and I didn't, I forgot to turn the rear end cooler on um, because I didn't run a rear end cooler in ASA car. Burnt up the gear, you know, fell out, had to change the gear, got back out. Car didn't handle that well in the long run. Long story short, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm pulling with a, a cube van in an open trailer and I'm sitting on the fender of the trailer at the pay shack to get my money so that I could go back to Indiana where I was racing out of. And this guy comes walking up and he looks over into the cockpit of the car and he sees there's only a water temperature and oil pressure gauge. He looked at me and he says, you only got two gauges in this car? I said, yeah, that's all you need. You ain't got no tack? No, you don't need one. Back then, you just, you, because of weight, you didn't run a tack. You just drove it by feel. If it needed a gear, you put a gear in it. If you need to take <laughs> gear out, you took it out. That's how we did. How much lead's in this car? And it caught me off guard. So I, of course, I lied, but I yeah. should have said 300 pounds. I said 400 pounds. He almost fell on the ground, you know, because those guys had 150 pounds in theirs. This car had 60% left side weight. So he about fell out. Then he looked at me and said, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no. He said, J.C. Elder. <laughs> and I looked at him and I didn't know who that was. And he said, Jake Elder. Then he said, Jake. Oh, yeah, okay, you know. So Jake Elder, there's a reason why Jake Elder, every car Jake ever touched ran faster. It's because he paid attention. Some kid come down here and qualified fifth. We ain't never seen him before. We don't, I'm gonna go look at his car. And he was studying, you know, and that impressed me about him because he was interested in what I was doing. He come over and looked at my car, you know, and, and I was nobody. But anyway, yeah, we went on, uh, we took that car then to Nashville and we qualified fifth 
and but we blew up in in the last practice well i was under the hood changing the motor it was on saturday last practice on saturday before the race saturday night i'd never been to nashville i didn't know i'm in there working i'm helping change the engine i'm in under the hood jake comes up walks up and says now how in the hell are you gonna drive this car i said what I said how in the hell are you gonna drive this car up tonight oh got to change the motor well, I didn't learn much because the motor we put in blew up on the first lap. But I had learned enough to know that the car was backing up on tires. It, it was fast, but it gave up. And I had 60% left side weight and 51% and rear weight, which was wrong. Rear weight was way wrong, but I didn't know. That's why I ran my late model. So I took it home and I called Randy Sweet because Randy Sweet, I outran Randy Sweet most of the time. But Randy was smarter than me about front-end geometry and cars. He was really smarter than me. He just didn't work on his car as much as I did. So I called him and said, you got to come down here. We got to cut this front end up. Something ain't right on this car. You know, it's giving up. Come down. So he comes down. We cut the upper A-frames off of it, redo the front-end geometry. And we take it back down there to Nashville for the second Nashville race. And we uh, – we sat on pole and it just, it blew everybody away. So on Saturday's final practice, we go out and I run three laps, two to three tenths faster than anybody. Brought it in, put it on jack stands. That's all I run in, in the last practice. That's what you did with your ASA car. You got everybody covered, you park it. I didn't have no idea, so I parked it. So anyway, we're on the line getting ready to start the race. And Dale Inman comes over. I'm in the car. And he puts his elbows in the car. And he looks in the floorboard. And he looks at me. And he says, you got a hole in that floorboard? And I was cocky. I said, no, why? Because you're going to melt and run out of that thing tonight. <laughs> 420 laps. So the green flag comes out. I bust out to a lead. I lead about 38 laps or something like that. Then I, uh, two laps later, I call him on the radio and I say, feel like I got four flat tires. By lap 100, I'm lapped. And by lap 140, when the first pit stop comes, my, I got a picture of me on a pit stop with a right side jacked up there doing their pit stop, and my face looks like Rudolph's nose. I am bright red on fire. So Inman likes to tell that story every time he sees me. But – Anyway, after that race, I still knew something was wrong, so I started snooping around. I found out what Junior Johnson's four weight, somewhere they run a short track car where they had four wheel weight scales. And I got them weights. Well, it's 55% left and 51% front weight, not rear weight, not 51 rear. So I go to Martinsville and I qualify six with all my lead in the left rear, and then I take it and move it over to the right front and make it 55 left, 51 front. We led that race about 40, 40 laps, and we also finished third with our ASA pit crew. Nobody had ever been, none of us had ever been to a NASCAR race. So it was a pretty amazing time. We, we did that. We, we went to uh, Richmond and sat on the pole there and uh, got ready to start the race. They said, gentlemen, start your engine. Mine wouldn't start. Wouldn't start, wouldn't start. They all went out there, took the green flag. My guys took the breather off, pulled a rag out of the carburetor, 
put the breather back on it. So I started to race one at the back of the pack, one lap down, finished one lap down seventh. So I thought it was going to be easy. Looked easy, seemed easy. So I came NASCAR racing full time in 1982 and got my butt handed to me. Broke, destroyed me, destroyed my career. I had to start all over again. So without that, Without that experience, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I hate to think who I would have turned out, how, how I would have turned out if I had not gone through that uh, humiliating experience. It was a very tough time, but that's kind of the story. And I've got a podcast myself, markmartinpod.com or all the, the podcast platforms have, have Mark Martin Pod. And I've done every single year of my racing career I'm up to 99 now, but I'm going to finish wow. them off. But every year, and I, I talk about every year, just that year. In the first five years, the most interesting thing is the tow truck and the tow truck uh, evolution. I think that's the best part of the story. It's amazing, you know, what we went through. My dad, of course, I was a kid. I was 15, 14, 15 when we started. So he was the, he was the guy driving the tow truck and, making it, wanting it to go faster and all the experiences we had through the first, uh, uh, you know, in 1978, uh, we, uh, we blew three motors up in the tow truck, which was more motors than we blew up chasing for our ASA championship. So y'all are trying to get to the racetrack in a hurry, huh? <laughs> yeah, we were always. Hey, I'm curious about, um, 81, you know, you talked about Jake Elder coming up to you and Dale Lindman. Did any of the drivers uh, come and try to figure out what this kid from from uh, the, the the ASA series was doing? Did they did, were were you friendly with them? Did any of them befriend you? Yeah, uh, well, your brother he knew I was big time because you know he was very uh, integrated in ASA racing and short track racing and came up there all the time and he knew who I was and. Um, the year before, uh, when I broke my uh, feet and ankles, he drove my car. And that's another story. Go to Mark Martin Pod and listen to 1980, because there's a story about your brother. And I told, I told, I told Daryl, I said, we're going to break the track record, and we're going to win the race. You come drive my car, if you come drive my car. And he did, and we did. And that was hard, because that... He, Trickle beat us out on the last pit stop, and he had to pass Trickle on the racetrack for the win and did it and pulled it off. So that's, that's the story. So, but Daryl wasn't looking at my car because he's driving for Junior. You know, they, although there were things that they could have learned and adapted, if I would have known the things that Daryl knew and he would have knew the things that I did, we would have been in our own lap. You know, I mean, it, it's a shame that I didn't, you know, sort of somehow coordinate with, with people in the sport and bring the things that I knew and, and, and bring the things they knew because there was a lot of stuff I needed to learn. But anyway, Bobby Allison also befriended me. But there again, wasn't that overly interested in my car or what I was doing. But Bobby and, and, and Daryl were were definitely uh, good friends of mine and, and supporters of mine before I even, even ever 
started running those races in 81. I think it's real interesting um, that, that you were able to accomplish what you accomplished. You, you showed up and, and then you said you got your tail kicked in 82 and, and back, back to the up north you went. And, and then the opportunity with, with Jack that came along. How, how did, uh, I'm going to skip a couple years there because I, I, I want everybody to listen to your podcast and check out 83 and 4 and 5. But was it 80, 88 or 89 when you, when you got the deal with Jack? Yeah, and uh, 88, and, and I'll, I'll need to tell you just a tad about 87 that led me to that. In 84, uh, I got with Ford, and they, they helped me some with my SA car, so I became a Ford driver in 84. In 86, we won the ASA championship uh, with Jimmy Fitt. In 86, I was back on top in ASA. I had Jimmy Finning for a crew chief. I had Jerry Gunnerman for an owner. I had the nicest stuff, and we won the championship again. But Jimmy was getting offers to be Bobby Allison's crew chief in, in Cup, and I, was, I, I got an offer to go bush racing. And so we decided, both of us decided that we would, you know, move on and to that. So being a Ford driver, we built a Ford Bush car. We had two cars to run the full schedule. We had a speedway car and a short track car. Unfortunately, that's when V6s ran and Ford didn't have a V6 yet. So I had to run a V8 with a weight penalty and, uh, and all. But by Dover, when is that? First of May, we got our first win. Two weeks later, we sat on the pole and got our second win. And the phone started ringing for Ford teams, but you know, like Bud Moore, you know, whatnot, wanting to talk about 88. And, but Steve Neal kept calling me and saying, Jack, don't call you. Went, okay, month passes. Next time I see him, yeah, Jack's going to call you. Another month passes. Well, he ain't called yet. Finally, he called. And I, you know, want to come to Michigan and talk about my NASCAR program, he says. So I went up there. He took me through everything. His, his office was about five, six feet by six feet, maybe that big. We sat in there and we talked. He told me his plan. He says, I've got $3 million, my own money, and I got some help from Ford. So I got enough money to run two years. And this is what I'm going to do. This is the people I've got, Steve Mill, Robin Pemberton. Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And uh, would you be interested in driving a car? And I stood up, shook his hand, and about, I really got dizzy-headed because I was so, I mean, I, I got dizzy. And I went home, and I... By the way, I never asked what he was going to pay me. Right. And it wasn't much. <laughs> it wasn't much. But, boy, I had me a cup ride. And I was working with Steve Mill and Robin Pemberton and some guys with big hearts. And we built that thing. They built that thing brick, brick by, by brick. And... Uh, it was, uh, 
It was a good time. It was, uh, it was the break that I needed when no one else would give it to me. You know, I had come once and shown so much promise and then got flushed down the toilet. And I thought I would never be a cup driver again. And Jack gave me the opportunity and the tools to do it with and the people to do it with. And I will forever be grateful to that man for that. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and y'all together started something really special in NASCAR for, for Jack. So um, I know that he's equally as thankful for you and y'all's partnership. You know, we were talking also a little bit about uh, drivers that knew me before, before NASCAR, NASCAR. Uh, of course, Jack, you know, he talked to several drivers, talked to Jeff Bodine. Then he talked to Bobby Allison about driving his car. Bobby wasn't interested, but he said, you know who you need to get to drive that car? Jack said, who? He said, Mark Martin. How about that's that? another thing. That's another thing I'll never forget. You know, the first time, um, the first time I ever got to drive a, a Bush car, um, let me go back. First time I ever got to drive anything other than one of those little four cylinder cars that I showed up running in the dash series. Yeah. Um, I was at Milwaukee and Bobby and Daryl went, went somewhere to race that night and there was a practice and I was there with my dash car and Bobby comes up to me and says, uh, he says, Mike, I'm not going to be here for this practice. You want to shake my car down? And, and I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That, that would be the best thing that's ever happened in my life. <laughs> my brother had a car sitting over there that he damn sure didn't want me getting in. And, and Bobby, <laughs> Bobby let me get in his car. I mean, I'd never been in one. I didn't tell him. I guess he knew I'd never been in I didn't tell him. But, uh, man, I, I just – that makes me so thankful for that man. And, and the times I got to fly from racetrack to racetrack with him and – and uh, share his stories. Uh, he and Daryl had quite the rivalry, and it's it's crazy. You know, my brother and Dale were were rivals. My brother Richard Petty, and I became friends with all these guys that that you know I never dreamed that that they would be so kind and so good to to me and do things for me that they did. I'm I'm glad you shared that story about Bobby. Well, Bobby and Daryl both don't get anywhere near the recognition today for the contribution that they made to the sport outside of their own cockpits. You know, both of those guys, I mean, Daryl was a huge supporter of the ASA series and Rex Robbins and late models and short track racing big time. And he didn't have to do that. He was a winning cup driver driving for junior Johnson and whatnot. He didn't have to do that at that time, but he did it because of his racing roots and, and he believed in it. Bobby Allison, the same thing. Bobby raced somewhere every night. You know how it was. You jump on a plane and with him and fly somewhere. You know, he'd be at a he'd qualify, you know, at Pocono, jump in the plane after qualifying and fly somewhere and race that night, then fly back and, and run Saturday, you know, in the NASCAR race and then fly somewhere again in his little airplane. The dude was – that guy was – he was a ox. I mean – Never got tired, just raced all the time. And Daryl did that too. Yeah. 
but Bobby was, was amazing. And Bobby helped so many people. Daryl did too, but Bobby especially did made such a huge contribution to the sport outside of his cockpit. Um, Bobby and Daryl both. I love when you told the story about Daryl, because I think a lot of people today, you know, they, they knew him as a TV guy or at maybe even the end of his career. I love, yeah. I love you telling the story about you, you, the ASA champion, calling up Daryl and saying, you come here, we'll break the track record, we'll win the race. Yeah. That's, how, that's how good my brother was. He was, he was that's how good he was. I, I like to expand on that story just a little bit. I was laying in the hospital with my feet broke and the phone rings. And it's John McCarns, Art the race is gonna be in two weeks. You were supposed to run, you're not gonna be able to run it. Uh, I, I wanna have Daryl Walter drive your car. And I said, well, if you do, I'm getting all the purse money. Okay. And, uh, you know, so we made the deal and Daryl's gonna drive my car. And then when I talk to Daryl, we're gonna break the track record because I was just up there a month ago and I was way too loose and I set the track record. We're going to tighten it up. We're going to break the track record. He pays $200 to break the track record. So I broke the track record like every week that, that year because I had my car was stupid, hands down the class of field. And everybody had to have one. Daryl wound up buying one. Bobby, everybody, everybody, everybody had to have one of those cars. Well, I had them. You know, we designed them first, and so they were they had just come out of the gate in, in, in 1980. So he shows up to drive the car, and he gets in it, and the seat is way too high. I mean, Daryl's a lot bigger than we counted on. Dude was not comfortable. It was a 200-lap race. Oh, we tried to, you know, but he's all up in there like this here, you know, driving that car. We broke the track record. And then, of course, he was leading. We had a pit stop, and Trickle beat us out. It's in Wisconsin. Nobody beats Trickle in Wisconsin. So, Daryl, you know, and Daryl's loose. You know, he'd been loose. I said, don't worry about it, Daryl. We'll fix it when we fit. You know, and took some rear stagger out of it. And Daryl worked him and passed him and won the race. That's unbelievable. That's right. unbelievable that he could do that. He just flew in and, and just did that. But Daryl Walter, people don't know. That son of a gun was fierce, dude. He was a driving son of a gun, man. And he drove That's all, tough. everything, all the time. And you can't, I can't describe how incredible of a race car driver Daryl Walter was. And tough, too, just like just like you and Bobby Allison, anybody that grew up on the short tracks and, and built their cars and, and, and uh, did everything it took to, to be a racer back, back in the 70s and 80s, it, 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 was, uh, it, it, was a different, it was a different type of toughness. You know, I wouldn't want to race. I wouldn't want to try to chase Jimmy Johnson down the road. I couldn't ever catch him. And, you know, and, and the way these guys work out now, their physical fit, their, their, their machines behind the wheel of these race cars. Denny Hamlin, uh, he hits a golf ball like 300 yards. And uh, I didn't really understand why, because he looks like he ain't much bigger than you. And then I went to the gym with him one day, and, and I think he can pick me up and put me over his head just like you. So you don't realize what, 
like it's just a different kind of toughness. But you guys did what you had to do back in the 70s and 80s to survive, and these guys are doing what they have to do today, which is making sure when they get behind the wheel of that car, they're physically fit and ready to go. And I think an interesting, uh, an interesting story is Martin Truex doesn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, some people are just – they're tough naturally. They don't have to do any of that crap. Martin is old school, man. He's yeah. old school. Yeah. I saw something on uh, Twitter. I think uh, Sherry Pollack said the only, only thing he does, the only time he's running is when he's chasing a beer or, or something's chasing him. A bear is chasing him or something, you know. So whatever it was, it's pretty funny. But, yeah, you know, uh, Tony Stewart was the same way. Yes. You know? I mean, Tony never fell out of the seat, you know, but that was kind of an old school racer. And today, in today's age, you can't hardly afford to not be fit because you have a lot riding on you and you're judged whether or not you, you do that and you work out hard is part of the part of the criteria that you're judged on. Right. And, uh, it, you know, it's just a different world today. Um, I, I worked out because I was, I wanted to gain an advantage. Mm -hmm. Nobody was doing it in the sport and, uh, and it was an advantage, um, at the time. And now you have to do it just to, to be on equal, not, not to be disadvantaged. Right. When I was, uh, I started running because I wanted to, I wanted to prove to myself that I might get outrun, but I definitely wasn't going to get outlasted. And my running, uh, morphed into I did four marathons and I I was I, I was really in great physical shape and one day I was running around the racetrack at Miami and I think it was 99 or 2000 uh one of those two years and Ty Norris told me this story the other day he and Dale came through the tunnel and they just happened to glance over on on the track and there I was you know running around that track and, and Dale said, Ty, you see that? That's because he wants it. That's how bad he wants it. He wants to make sure he's ready when he gets a chance. And that, that was big for me back then. But it was yeah. part, of the, part of the whole puzzle, just like your working out was for you. Right. Yeah. Um, now, the first cup win was Rockingham, right? Yes, in 89. We, we should have won our fifth race. We should have run won Bristol in 88. I was running third, and uh, Bill Elliott and Jeff Bodine were running in front of me. Elliott was leading, and Bodine was second. And Bodine turned Elliott around. <laughs> it was five to go or something. So... Steve said, Pitt, we're going three cars on the lead lap. Just us three. Pitt, of course, Pitt get four tires. It's going to be an easy win, right? Because Jeff didn't come. Jack says, now, wait a minute. Let's think about that. So we were scared. We shouldn't have been. We should have just done what we were supposed to do. But we were scared and waited. And then Steve convinced him, so we pitted on the second lap. We're of course, Elliot pitted on the first lap, put four tires on. So he lined up in front of me. And, of course, he won, and I ran second. And then but, was 88 when, you, when your wheels all fell off at Sonoma? 
And you I believe the- it might have been 89 when the right rear. So we come in for a gas and go. And the right rear tire guy runs around there and buzzes all the nuts off the right rear. And, I, of course, they, they say go, the finish, I leave. I run up there, you know, make that left-hander and wheel comes off and I turn over. Dude, I thought I'd done something wrong. I thought I left here in a, a tire change. The last thing in the world I wanted to do is mess up. You know, I'm still vulnerable. Right. You know, I'm probably I, on the verge of getting fired. And now I've, you know, so I got out of the car and I ran all the way to the pits to find out what happened. I never will forget that, that those pictures of you running. Just, I didn't know what you were running for or two, but I knew you was in a hurry and you, <laughs> you had some definite concerns. Yeah, I was, I was concerned I had messed up. <laughs> Well, then the winds started coming in cup, and uh, uh, so thankful that my my friend Denny won this past Sunday because he tied you with 40 wins, and I thought, I want to call Mark Martin. I want to talk to him about his wonderful career and, and our friendship and, um, and Denny uh, getting those wins. I think it, it's given everybody a chance to think about what a special cat you are and, and what a great career you had. I know you didn't win a championship. I, I knew you've heard that a hundred times, but five times second in the, in the, in the championship standings and 40 wins, uh, not to mention what you did in the Xfinity and, and trucks and stuff. So um, I'm, I'm happy for you. I hope I'm glad you're out there enjoying life too. That's pretty cool. Well, I appreciate that. I, I run second to all the goats in NASCAR, except for Richard Petty, I think in the points championship, you know, uh, in, uh, I gave it, I gave it everything I had and I had a, a great career. Um, as far as Denny goes, you know, just a, uh, congratulations to Denny. You know, he's got many more in front of him. He's an incredible race car driver. Um, uh, and I appreciate the respect that he's given me over the years. And I think NASCAR is lucky to have him, uh, because he's a different character, different personality, um, you know, tremendous competitor. I love what I'm seeing with he and his crew chief. I love his crew chief has really figured out how to give Denny the confidence. I mean, he's getting so much more out of Denny that you didn't think could be done. But uh, that combination, that chemistry is so good. It's so much fun to watch. So I really uh, salute Chris for what he's doing there uh, as crew chief and being able to uh, not only get the car uh, that Denny needs, but, man, the confidence he needs. I think that sometimes the cars run better when the driver thinks they're going to run better. (laughs) You know, I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. Uh, He's a professional golfer, Harold Varner III, and Harold's – Harold's a great dude, and we, we enjoy laughs together. And, and he, he said, I didn't know Denny was that good. And <laughs> I said, you know, Harold, uh, I think a lot of people might maybe have, were guilty of that. But the, the kid won Pocono when he was a rookie. He has been he's – he's an awesome talent, and, and he's, he is that good. And like, like you, he, he, he's he, – He's lost. He lost a couple of championships just by the, the narrowest of margins. But um, I, I, 
you're you're spot on with that. I can tell you're uh, tuned into NASCAR because you're you're spot on with Gabe Hart. They they just really have a special relationship, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing seeing how the season goes for 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 him throughout the rest of the year. Do you know, Mark, that this weekend will mark the midway point of the regular season? I, I, after all we've been through, that just kind of blows me away. So we're starting to see some trends. Kyle Busch hasn't been to Victory Lane, which I know is a concern for that organization. Truex uh, didn't win a short track forever, and now he wins every time he goes to him. it seems like. <laughs> but I'll tell you another stat I learned today from Larry McReynolds, and if you need any stats, you call Larry Mike because he's got them. Uh, 0 for 60 on big trucks, Daytona and Talladega is Truex. So can't you know who do you when you when you think about Talladega it's easy to to talk about the success that you know how good Denny's been on the big tracks and Keselowski Logano seems to have, have that talent um and also Logano or excuse me Blaney he seems to be figuring out these uh draft and who do you think is going to be your favorite in Talladega this weekend wow you know I think it's anybody's race uh more now than ever uh it's always kind of been anybody's race, but it's more now than ever. Uh, when I think about masters on restrictor plate racing, two people come to mind that most people don't think of. That's Michael Waltrip and uh, Mike Wallace was incredible uh, as, as a restrictor plate driver. And of course, Dale Earnhardt uh, won lots of races with slow cars, <laughs> you know, just amazing. Um, you know, there have been some guys that just had a knack. And there's some guys it, – it, it's a different skill set, you know. There was, a, there was a guy one day that won Talladega in a, in a car that looked like it, it uh, was – was, had uh, hydraulic jackers in the back. It was <laughs> sucked down so low. And I, I don't know how – you said your back's all right. I don't know how it's all right after you rode that thing for 500 miles that day. <laughs> well, I had surgery. <laughs> <laughs> a year, a year and a half after that, I had back surgery. So that's how I'm good now. So, oh, uh, you know, but I never. It was so different. Restrictor plate racing was so different. I never understood how to make a car good for that. You know, I didn't have that knack, and my skill set for driving a restrictor plate race was nothing more than fair or average. You know, I never did a whole lot more with a car than, than I really had. There's some guys that really do that. Uh, Keselowski is the one that I, that I think of in today's era that just, he just, I don't know. I don't know how Brad does it, but uh, he seems to always find, find the front. But, you know, with the way the racing is, it's probably harder to position yourself and strategize yourself and drive yourself to the front of one of these things because you can pretty much count on a green white checkered finish. Yeah. Pretty much. And when you have a green white checkered finish, it ain't about where you put yourself. It's about what everybody else does, what happens on that restart and where all the other cars go. Now you can take credit, for being smart and being lined up in front of so-and-so or whatever, but it's not really that. It's really what everybody else does that makes your move or what you do right or wrong. 
And so I think that's part of the appeal of the racing is you don't know till it's over who's going to win. Uh, the cup race in Miami, Tyler Reddick, uh, he is he has shown that that he gets it that he, he can really wheel one of these 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 cars and I, we already knew that but a a solid fourth place finish but I don't know if you saw on the on the last lap he, he took the white and he slowed and he you know he thought the race was over does that ever happen to you you know he dodged a bullet there because I said you know that's the dumbest thing. Can anybody be be that dumb? And he, he wasn't as dumb as me because he managed to <laughs> still finish where he was running, where I gave a win away. So uh, definitely, yeah, I know I know about that, uh, and I will never live that down. I'm probably more famous for my screw ups and uh, and and near misses than I am for anything that I did that was either right or, or, or pretty good. So I, I uh, I'll, I'll never live that down. But the thing, I never denied it. I stepped right out of the car and got on television and said, that's the stupidest thing anybody could ever do. And I did it. So we'll just have to move on from it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I strongly disagree that, that, that the way you handle that is a sign of your character. You know, we're going to all screw up. Just happened to be a lot of people watching on that one for for you, but uh, the 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 wins certainly that if if you hadn't had all the success, it wouldn't be funny to talk about. But you certainly have a lot of things that are more important than what happened in Bristol that day. Yeah, if I hadn't had a lot of uh, wins in that series, that one would have hurt. If that would have been the only win that I was going to get and didn't get it, that would really be murder. But uh, we had some good times in that series. Um, you know, I had a lot of good race cars and I was in a position where uh, Jack let me kind of define uh, those cars uh, during the 90s and uh, it kept me a job. I would have never survived. Jack would have fired me at times when we had dry spells at Roush's because we did, we had dry spells where we didn't run good and I don't think I would have ever made it had I not been able to get out of that cup car and walk over to the, the Bush car and go out there and win. Winning in that car kept me, because I was the one that called, you know, said who hung the body and how I wanted the body hung and what setup went in, what springs and all those things. You know, I was able to define those cars. They let me define those cars um, and, and it worked. And that kind of stuff kept me in the business. But I learned at an early age, really, especially racing against Larry Phillips, if I wanted to win, I had to make my car better than everybody else's. And that paid big dividends because I wound up being able to beat Larry once in a while. Then I had to tackle uh, Dick Trickle and Bob Sinecker and guys like that, Mike Eddy and all. Same thing applied. And then the next thing I knew, I had to tackle Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> and the same thing applied. Now, he would beat me with a slow car every once in a while and really pee me off. But, you know, as a rule of thumb, if I made my car enough good, enough better than his, I could probably pull it off. So, 
Um, that was a lesson that I learned. The car made all the difference in my career. And that's where I always kept my focus on was on that race car. Well, um, you mentioned Larry Phillips. The Hall of Fame class is going to be um, announced this week. I know you have intimate uh, details about the Hall of Fame being a, a proud member yourself. Do you think Larry gets in? Do you, do you think Dale Jr. gets in? What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on the Hall of Fame class of 2020? It's so difficult. Um, it's probably one of the most difficult things that if you're on the voting panel, probably one of the most difficult, uh, challenges you'll face every year because everyone that's on the ballot, uh, every year is very deserving. And it's, and you think, you know, who you're going to vote for. And then somebody stumps for somebody that you didn't have counted on and they do a really good job and, and bring to light things that you didn't know. And then you're just like undecided then. So I don't, I'm not overly optimistic that Larry gets in. Mm -hmm. uh, I know Mike Stefanik's numbers are absolutely astounding, but everybody that's on that ballot, you know, needs to be in there. And I don't know when, I don't know when some of them go in, uh, it, when, when I got inducted, I was absolutely embarrassed because I looked up at the banners of the people that were in that hall, and I, I just didn't feel like I belonged. And I knew some people that weren't in there that, should, that I would have voted for uh, rather than me. And, and there's just so few that go in every year and so many that are deserving that have such rich, rich history and in the sport. I mean, every one of them is deserving. I mean, Dale Jr. is absolutely, uh, absolutely amazing career, you know, uh, with two uh, Bush series, Xfinity series championships and all the races he won, all the races he won, the things he did, the way he carried the sport, uh, the broad shoulders that uh, that guy has and the contributions that he continues to make to the sport, which are huge. He, he brings a appreciation for history that not many do. Not many are able to bring that message uh, on the level that he brings. But gosh, I don't know. Then I think about Ricky Rudd and, and you know, my teammate, you know, for years, Jeff Burton and how instrumental he was in my career and what amazing contribution he made to Roush Racing. Uh, I just, every single guy that's on that ballot, you know, needs to go in. And it would be cool if they could all go in this year, but I guess time, in time, uh, they will all get in. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm extremely thankful that you, uh, you Hall of Famer Mark Martin took a chance and and came to to drive for for us uh, for Michael Waltrip Racing um, when you did and and uh, we we won a few races as a team but the most painful loss that we we ever had was at Pocono when uh, when Joey got you uh, going to Victory Lane with you would have been uh, the the highlight of 
of my my team ownership years, but just having you on my team and you you being able to 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 understand what it took to win and what we needed to do to get better, you absolutely elevated our whole organization with your presence there. And, and uh, I'm thankful for that. I'll be thankful for that forever. Well, I can't tell you how thankful I am for the opportunity. It was so much fun. And you had such an incredible organization. It was absolutely phenomenal. And you were in a position to take it to take the fight to the Hendricks and the, and, and, and the Gibbs at that point. You had the people, the personnel. When I went there, you had the deal. And I drove an absolute freaking rocket ship. We sat on six poles that first year. And, uh, and man, we had some wins right at our fingertips. And uh, it was so much fun. The only year that I had as much fun as that was 2009. And in 2009, we won five races. So <laughs> that's got to tell you something. That's the only year I had as much fun as I did uh, driving for you. And the, the relaxed atmosphere there, it was so comfortable. Uh, and, and cars hauled and you had, we had great people. Just a whole building full of fantastic people there. And uh, you should be proud of what you were able to accomplish and what you were able to build and the people that you were able to uh, get together there. That was, uh, that was an amazing period of time there uh, in, that, in that period of time. Well, I, I appreciate those kind words. It's, you know, it's something that I'm so thankful I had the chance to experience. Um, sad that it went away, but um, happy that it happened. Uh, you know, and, and, and I'll always feel that way. Uh, Mark, I just, I want to say thank you for, for joining me and uh, for sharing the memories. Uh, of course, you always bring smiles to my face and a couple of tears today with some of your stories, but uh, you know, it's just really good to, to get to see it. And, and I want to listen to the, I want to listen to the podcast, Mark Martin podcast when you get to year 2009, because I remember the success you had then. And then I'll eagerly await till you get up into the teens so, uh, so I can hear you talk about racing for us. But um, much, much appreciated uh, you spending this time with me today. I had a blast, Michael. It's good to see you, good to talk to you, and good to be on. And keep up the good work. I appreciate you, buddy. You too. Wow, that was a lot of fun. I love the memories of thinking about my brother, what a champion he was back in the day. And... Bobby Allison, the stories that Mark shared, the tremendous talent and the heart and the person that Mark Martin is, it just makes me happy. So I had a great podcast talking to Mark. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to tell your friends about Waltrip Unfiltered. They can add us on their favorite podcast app as you've done or you wouldn't be watching. Plus, we're on all of Fox Sports social media channels. We can be on Facebook, Instagram, you name it. Fox Sports has it. Thanks for watching Walter Unfiltered, and we'll talk to you next week.